Today I'm talking to Ian Vasquez, who is a Vice President um, for International Studies at the Cato Institute and a Director of its uh, Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Ian is a colleague of 18 years. 18 years we've been working together without murdering each other or anything like that. And uh, we've been having a lot of fun. Uh, I don't think we've done a podcast before, but, uh, but the reason why I wanted to talk to Ian today is because of his uh, specific interest in Latin America. Ian is obviously one of the best known analysts and commentators on what is happening in Latin America. And uh, Latin America is not doing all that hot these days. We are seeing a lot of uh, turmoil, political and economic. And uh, that has bearing on human progress. Uh, whether societies grow economically or stay politically stable is obviously deeply connected to whether societies flourish. So I thought that we could take an hour or so to talk about the state of Latin America. And the first question that I want to ask you, Ian, is uh, how does the current political and economic situation in Latin America, with everything that we see in the news, how does it compare to, uh, let's say, the last 50 years or a, or a century of, of Latin American history? Are we seeing an unprecedented amount of political and economic turmoil? Or is this something cyclical that just comes by every few decades or so? Well, you said, uh, thanks, by the way, for inviting me. My pleasure. Well, you said that, that the, the region is currently going through turmoil. And yes, that, that's right. Uh, Latin America has seen better days. I mean, we now have three dictatorships in the region, Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. And we have um, the rise of authoritarian populists who are in charge of countries, including in Mexico and in Argentina. And we even have countries that have been by every uh, indicator success stories that are on the verge of, uh, of populist uh, politics and possibly authoritarian uh, in nature. Those include Peru and Chile. Uh, and that's worrisome in and of itself. But one of the reasons it's worrisome is precisely because um, there has been notable progress in Latin America since the 1970s and 1980s. Remember that in the 70s and the beginning of the 80s, all of the region was, uh, virtually every country was a military dictatorship. And then the region started to democratize, which I think is a form of progress. Uh, so they liberalized politically, but they didn't liberalize economically. In fact, these, these democracies had the worst economic policies on record, and that led to um, the third world debt crisis, that was really a, a Latin American debt crisis, and what we call the lost decade of the, the 1980s that was just disastrous economically, hyperinflation and so on. Peru had hyperinflation rate of 7,000% in 1990. And then with the collapse of, of the Soviet Union and uh, the Berlin Wall and central planning all around the world, the, the region finally in the late 80s and early 90s implemented market reforms. It started opening up. And so it started to liberalize economically. And it's, it's at that point that you really start to see the big changes in, in Latin America, a region that had closed itself off for 50 or 60 years from the rest of the world joined globalization opened itself up in many ways, economically, politically, and so on. And that's where you really see these 
increases in indicators of human well-being and per capita income and so on. And obviously some countries did much better than others. Some countries ended up not doing so well. The most obvious case is, is Venezuela. Uh, but today the region is a much, much more diverse place in terms of its politics, its economics, its uh, income levels and, and human well-being uh, levels than it was in the 1970s and the 1980s. You have countries that have really progressed much more than others, but as a region, generally speaking, uh, there's been notable progress. And, uh, and yet there are a few cases that really stand out as exceptions to that. And as I say, Venezuela is one of them, Cuba is another uh, one of them. So that's what's worrisome about the trend today. Despite all this progress, including in countries that are just clear success stories in world history, uh, you are seeing these setbacks, which is a reminder for all of us who believe in liberal democracy and in human progress itself that we can't take it for granted. And that there are a lot of factors, probably in Latin America, ones that uh, you could generalize to try to explain what has happened. Uh, and also you really have to look at each particular country to, to uh, fill out the story as to what are the factors that explain those setbacks in those countries. Yeah, I definitely want to get more granular and talk about individual countries, but let's just stick at the regional level first. And uh, let me ask you this. How much of the changes economic and political in the 1980s and the 1990s was because socialism as a uh, um, as a respectable alternative to economic development simply lost its luster? Um, how important was the fall of the Berlin Wall or was the dissatisfaction with uh, uh, with uh, over-regulated economies sort of domestically generated? In other words, was the push toward political and economic liberalization something that Latin Americans did of their own, uh, something they felt they had to do because their system wasn't delivering, or was it an external impetus? It was mostly an internal impetus, but there's no question that the collapse of, uh, of socialism had a big impact on the policy debate, on the ideology that was uh, predominating. I mean, if you look at, at the 1980s in Latin America, it really was uh, disastrous. In some countries, um, entire uh, rebel groups were taking over huge parts of the country. In Peru, it looked like they were going to actually take over the whole country at, at, at one point. Um, society, it was collapsing. Money didn't work. Uh, nothing uh, was working in a lot of these countries. And um, these were countries that had tried every other kind of policy. Uh, Right-wing right -wing, uh, sort of fascistic kind of policies, military dictatorships of the right, military dictatorships of the left, uh, socialist type uh, uh, policies, what came to be known as heterodox policies, just a combination of mishmash of all sorts of, of policies, and none of it worked. Uh, so by the end of the, uh, of the 1980s, um, there was nothing else left to do but to actually finally try market reforms. And some countries, as I say, did it uh, much in a much more coherent and far-reaching way uh, than others. Those tended to be the more successful ones. Um, but there is no question that the collapse of, of socialism worldwide 
played a big role in helping to legitimize those free market policies. Because after all, if you, if you remember, Chile sort of stands out in this story as being unique. It was in the 1970s, 1975, actually, that it began its, its free market reforms, and it was successful. And yet, uh, the rest of the region didn't look to it as, as a model, uh, partially because it was implemented by a military uh, dictatorship, and most other military dictatorships, uh, virtually all of them actually, in the history of Latin America, didn't actually liberalize much and implement a successful market economy that increased people's choices in the economic sphere, did a lot of bad things in the other sphere. And so um, that legacy sort of tarnished the idea of market reforms for a lot of Latin America who still believe that the market just wasn't the way forward for underdeveloped uh, countries. But but by the end of the 80s, the evidence was just pointing in one direction and even Chile itself democratized. So um, both, both political liberalization and economic liberalization came together in the early 1990s in the region. And that's when you start seeing the, the big changes. Obviously, I want to talk a lot more about Chile, but um, before going there, let me ask you, um, Certainly by the 1990s, it's obvious that Chilean model is succeeding. Uh, the country has also democratized. Why is it so difficult for other Spanish-speaking Latin American countries to look to Chile as an example to follow? I, I realize that it's a strange question right now because Chile seems to be moving in the opposite direction. But there is a period between 1990 and, say, uh, 2010, when uh, perhaps even earlier, when it's obvious that the Chileans are doing something right, um, why is it so tough to learn the good lessons from Chile? And for that matter, why is it so tough to learn the bad lessons from Venezuela and Cuba? There isn't, there doesn't seem to be much learning going on, or am I wrong on that? I think you're partially wrong on that. There's been a lot of learning going on in, in Latin America. I would characterize most of the period after 1990 for most of the region as one of not just material progress, not just uh, progress in a lot of indicators of, of human well-being, um, and not just for, for the majority of, of countries, an increase in all sorts of freedoms compared to the 1970s and even the 1980s, but one in which lessons were learned. I mean, um, it used to be that inflation was a huge problem in Latin America for decades. It wasn't just something of the 1980s. We saw hyperinflation in the 1980s, but we also saw high inflation rates consistently <laughs> in, the, in the past. And, and yet, um, after the 1990, early 90s and the era of reform, that really uh, was an area that pretty much got under control in most countries. Now we've seen that Venezuela has uh, totally broken that pattern, but it's an exception to the rule. It's had hyperinflation and it's totally mismanaged its, its monetary policy. Argentina is also another example. Uh, it's not uh, it's not nearly as bad as, as Venezuela, but it's, it's high inflation. That's a chronic problem uh, for Argentina. Uh, but for most of the rest of the region, 
you know, we start worrying in Latin America when the inflation rate is in the, still in the upper single digits. And that's something that most of the region wants to avoid too. But that's progress because that didn't used to be the case. Most of the region is much more open uh, than it used to be. Uh, so those things um, did occur. And in many cases, there's, there's, they've been, in some cases, they've been rolled back. But in most cases, they've, they've held up. Now we'll see how long they'll hold up. So there has been learning. I think that the very fact that there are 5 million Venezuelan refugees uh, spread out over South America is a pretty good indicator to people that that's a model that you don't want to follow. I do think that nobody in Latin America, nobody wants to follow the Venezuelan model. There was a time when it was a kind of appealing, when oil prices were high and Hugo Chavez was in charge and, and he seemed to be on top of the world, financing all sorts of things and um, spending like mad and the growth kept up over there, but it was an illusion. Uh, that country has completely collapsed, 75% contraction in the economy since, since just in the last seven years. It's a disaster, 79% poverty rate. Most Latin Americans are well aware that they do not want that. Um, but that doesn't stop some political leaders and intellectuals from criticizing the market model. And so that still happens. That happens in the United States. That happens everywhere. And I think it'll always, <laughs> it will always happen. Well, that's a, great um, segue. No that's a great segue to talking a little bit about Chile. So Chile um, in the mid 1970s starts liberalizing. And if my facts are correct, it was the second poorest nation in Latin America. And it is now unquestionably the richest country in Latin America. Is that correct? It was a very poor uh, country, but it was also, according to the Fraser Institute's Economic Freedom of the World uh, Index, the second uh, least free uh, e economy uh, at the time. And now, of course, it's the freest economy in Latin America by far. It's also, uh, it's also the the freest country in Latin America, according to our human freedom index, it takes into account other freedoms, personal freedoms as well. Okay, so can you give us just very briefly a sort of um, an idea about the great success of Chile? Um, you already mentioned more economic freedom as a as one of the reasons for the success of the Chilean economy and society. Um, uh, so Chile obviously liberalizes. And what are the main accomplishments as we enter, let's say, the COVID pandemic? Where does, where does Chile, how, how would you quantify the success of the Chilean economy and society? Well, I mean, by, without any question, it's the most successful country in Latin America. It's the one that has consolidated democracy the most. It's the one that has become the wealthiest. It's the one that has become the freest on all indicators of freedom, not just economic freedom, but uh, personal freedom. Chile was really um, innovative and a pioneer in economic uh, reforms in that regard. I mean, remember these, these reforms started in the 1970s. 
be, privatization started at that time, even before Margaret Thatcher started doing it, we, even before the, the Berlin Wall fell and it became common for countries around the world to privatize and do that. Chile was a leader in that. Chile completely innovated um, the private pension system, which actually has been a huge success in, in the country. And so um, its reforms and reform ideas have been exported to the rest of the world afterwards, and they have been precisely because they've been successful in Chile. What happened in Chile? The country is now four times richer on a per capita basis than when the reforms began. Um, there is this leftist uh, narrative that has taken hold and um, uh, exists in Chile that somehow um, somehow uh, this has not been good for the poor, for the majority of the people because the rich have gotten most of the gains. And that's also uh, not true. If you look at inequality in Chile, uh, income inequality using the Gini indicator and a lot of other types of indicators, you see that it, there's this notable fall in inequality in Chile. Chile is less unequal than the Latin American average. And this happened uh, after uh, these reforms uh, were done. Uh, you see the poverty rate just plummet. And so there is less poverty in Chile than in any other country in Latin America. You see all sorts of indicators of a transformation of a country that used to be poor and highly unequal. It's still unequal, but that's continuing to, to go down. Um, you see it is on the verge of becoming a developed country by per capita income measures. It is a middle-class country now. And so you've had tremendous um, development, tremendous progress in a very short period of time. Um, and that has created probably a lot of expectations in Chilean society, uh, some of which in a country that's reforming so quickly have, have gone unfulfilled, especially, especially when there have been years of lower growth, when there's a pandemic and that kind of thing, that certainly influences politics. And um, uh, radicalization of, of, of politics in, in Chile during the last 10, 10 years has certainly influenced the situation there. But there's no question that by virtually any indicator that you look at, uh, Chile has been a, a tremendous story of, of progress that um, has benefited uh, all sectors of, of society. This is widely shared uh, progress. Okay, and then, uh, so about 18 months ago, maybe, maybe it's a little longer, maybe it's a little less, I can't remember, but suddenly there is this massive outpouring of anger and protests in the streets of Santiago and uh, a lot of violence, a lot of property damage. And, uh, the, and, and the protesters seem to coalesce on a, uh, on a desire or around a set of demands, the most important one of which is the rewriting of the constitution, which was drafted during the Pinochet years, but it was then uh, passed in a plebiscite and it was amended many, many times under democracy to make the constitution more reflective of the desires of the populace. But you have this constitution, this political setup, which allows 
the economy and the society to flourish. Then suddenly you have an outpouring of anger and protests and the protesters demand rewriting of that constitution. Can you tell us a little about um, where did those, those protests start? Why did they get out of hand? Why did the protesters sort of focus on the rewriting of the constitution? And then, then we'll get to the process. But let's just talk a little bit about the constitution itself and the protests and what happened there. Then we'll talk about what will happen in the future. Well, I mean, the the sort of the spark of these protests a couple of years ago was that um, the the government raised the price of the metro fares, which was always something that it did. It was something that was scheduled. It wasn't any political thing by um, by a few percentage, uh, by a, a very small amount, like I don't know how many cents. Any, it wasn't it wasn't very much immediately there were a number uh, of metro stations all over Santiago the capital that were burned in what was uh, no doubt a coordinated uh, fashion well-planned out fashion uh, and in, in a way that was very sophisticated which then paralyzed the entire city that had the the effect of mobilizing a lot of discontent that was already building up in in Chilean society. And so then the question is, um, how did these two forces, one which was sort of a driving radical force and there's radical politics behind that, combine with the broader sentiments of, of discontent that were building up in, in Chilean society uh, to produce these protests. The majority of the protests or the majority of the people in protests were peaceful, but this turned violent by a small group of, of Chileans who were very uh, well organized, especially in the evening and so on, and they just destroyed a lot of property and, uh, and so on and so forth. And I, <clears throat> and I think that part of the explanation is that uh, at the time, President Piñera, who was a center-right sort of conservative uh, president, or at least that's how he is viewed, um, had been elected on the heels of the previous socialist uh, president, Michelle Bachelet, who uh, had explicitly stated she wanted to undo all of these big reforms that, um, that, that had been uh, successful and inherited from uh, the, the military regime, and which Every government until then, which had been center-left governments, including socialist governments, had upheld without questioning. It was up until then, um, Chilean uh, politics was very reasonable, very moderate. The left uh, and the left coalition that governed the entire time uh, uh, up until President Piñera's first presidency about 10 years ago, and then she came, uh, was supportive of these policies was very uh, moderate. But then she started to become much more aggressive after Pineda's first presidency and politics on the left became much more uh, radical. This was rejected uh, by the majority of the, the voters and that's how they elected uh, President Pineda who's still in power uh, today, who was advocating market uh, solutions uh, 
and reverting what she had done. Well, when he got into power, he didn't do any of that stuff. Growth had already been declining as a result of, of Bachelet's uh, policies uh, before, but he was ineffective at actually promoting uh, what he was saying and growth stayed very low. At this point, you, you have uh, a country that had been used to high growth, real fast progress for decades, now experiencing years of low growth, radical politics on, uh, uh, on the left, increasing turmoil and a president who promised to reverse that and didn't do it. And that combination of uh, things, I think really did help to explain the outburst that came out of that. And I'll add um, one more element that I think is important in this story, which is the, the, the role of ideology. Um, the reformers in Chile were very successful uh, at what they did. It's the first country that I know of that uh, in, in which the reformers set out to create a free society, one uh, in which there would be a truly free market, not just economic reforms in, in trade or, or in agriculture or, or technical fixes here and there, but across the board in a very coherent fashion, not only in order to create a truly free market, but also to create a truly free society, one that is based on liberal democracy. They set out to do that. And, and in fact, that's what, that's what ended up uh, occurring. And so once they, uh, once they accomplished that, um, there was a sort of sitting back on, on the success of, of the country. A lot of the, these reformers were actually economists and they were technical. There weren't that many uh, defenders of the system as morally superior to the alternatives. And so what happened in the interim was that uh, the leftist narrative that the market itself is um, unfair that the entire system, because of its origin and whatever uh, results they, they would point to as unfair, should be reverted. That narrative took over all of the cultural institutions in Chile. And there weren't defenders on, on the, let's call it classical liberal side, who were making the persistent strong case. I can count them on one hand, maybe one or two or three people who uh, would say, no, this isn't just a technical thing. This is not just an economic thing. Chile is actually the most, is, is actually the most free society uh, in Latin America. One of the most free societies in the world as a result of this. You would never know that from listening to um, what professors at the universities were saying, what the, um, certainly what the labor unions were saying. You would even, wouldn't even know that from listening to the business leaders who were buying into that kind of rhetoric and not actually understanding uh, well, or even defending the big transformation that occurred in Chile. And so that when President uh, Piñera uh, became president, I think that created a lot of damage uh, to the society because he, he never, in my view, understood or believed fully uh, in, in these ideas. And he certainly didn't defend them. He started uh, using the rhetoric 
that that uh, critics of the market were using in order to gain popularity. And so he was the first center-right president after um, the military regime. And he started competing with the left on their own terms. Well, the, that made the left go farther to the left. And all of politics in Chile shifted to, to the left because of that. Uh, I think that that helps explain in large part why the, the, the politics became more radicalized there. And uh, that in part helps explain uh, the, the political climate and the debate in, in Chile, which led to these uh, protests and to the current situation. Right. So thanks for that. That's very interesting. And the biggest concession that Piñera gave to the protesters was the rewriting of the Constitution. So to bring the listeners up to speed, uh, there was a referendum, first of all, do you want to rewrite the Constitution? And the majority of Chileans said yes. Then there was a second round of voting where the Chilean people have elected a representative assembly or a constitutional assembly, which is going to write the Constitution, a uh, new Constitution. What are the dangers for Chile, Ian? Um, tell us a little bit about the uh, modalities or the practicalities, how the, how, the, how the Constitution is going to be written, how the different articles are going to be passed, and then tell us about the dangers of the final product. Well, I should say that uh, in Latin America, there's this fetish with, with constitutions, this idea that whenever there's a problem in politics or in society, the answer is, we need to write a new constitution and that will solve all of these problems. And so that's one of the, the reasons why Latin America is the continent with the most constitutions by far of any other region in, in, the, in, in the world. I mean, uh, the Fundación para el Progreso, which is a think tank in, in Chile, did a study and found that uh, Latin America has had nearly 200 constitutions. That's about an average of more than 10 per country. Yeah, you know, um, I think Venezuela has had 26. <laughs> uh, the Dominican Republic more than 30. It's, it's really bad. And um, there isn't any evidence that once you get a new constitution, somehow things all of a sudden get a lot better. Those cases are, are uh, far and few in between. And what's also happened with these constitutions in Latin America is they become longer and longer and longer and longer, full of all sorts of promises and contradictions and so on. And um, the, there's, they're certainly not models uh, uh, to be followed by, by countries around the world. Well, recently, I would say, um, like in the past uh, 20 years, we've seen a lot of countries uh, doing this uh, in the same process that Chile is about to, to get into. Um, they decide to have a constituent, they have a referendum, they decide to have a constituent assembly, they rewrite the, the constitution and um, they, the governments that uh, lead that process claim to refound uh, the country. This happened in Venezuela, uh, it happened in Bolivia, it happened in Ecuador, and the left that, that led all of those uh, initiatives um, seems to be leading the initiative in Chile as well. It, it doesn't just seem to be, it is <laughs> leading it. And if we are going to go be guided by those experiences, then um, there's a lot to be worried about because what happened in those uh, countries is that they basically wrote very socialistic type um, 
constitutions that promised all sorts of things, that recognized virtually no limits to the power of government, and that entrenched uh, these regimes uh, in power um, to a large extent. So um, I don't think that the, that the current process in Chile is very promising. There, before the actual vote for the actual members of the Constituent Assembly, which happened last, uh, last month, um, there was the hope that, well, plenty of Chileans are gonna vote for people who do want to put limits on power. This is not Venezuela, this is not Bolivia. Um, the Congress is made up of, you know, at least a third of, uh, of the Congress uh, that would sort of act like a veto uh, power against really bad ideas. So there was fully this expectation uh, that in order to pass anything, you need more than more than uh, two thirds. And so if you can't count on, on a coalition of uh, moderates in the, in the center or center left moderates and center right people and so on, um, then we shouldn't be terribly worried about the constitution that comes out of it. Well, unfortunately the vote came out uh, quite uh, differently. And those um, s moderates and center-right uh, candidates didn't get one-third of the vote. So they're not going to be able to, to, to veto a lot of these um, bad ideas that are going to come out of this Congress. We're going to look like constituent assembly is going to look like um, the, the, I'm afraid, uh, much more like the constitutions of of Venezuela and the populist uh, countries that have gone down this road than uh, what we would have liked to see. And that is the danger. So you have in the constituent assembly members who are um, far leftists uh, and people who are so-called independents, but they're far, to, most of them are to the left or far to the left. And, you know, over, over half of them believe that um, that uh, investments and trade with the rest of the world needs to be uh, reduced, sometimes prohibited. This is the kind of, of idea that I'm afraid is going to sneak into a new constitution in, in Chile. Uh, before I was hopeful that it wasn't going to be as bad, that probably the result was going to be a sort of welfare state type um, uh, constitution with limits to power and procedures of that kind of, of that kind. Now I'm, I'm not so sure that any of these kinds of checks and balances and limit, real limits to power are going to make it into that constitution, but um, we'll see. There is a question about, you know, um, how, the constitution is going to be approved is does each amendment have to pass a certain level of votes or will the entire constitution be submitted to one vote that has to pass a certain uh, you know threshold i think that that's not yet been uh, could, you, settled. So could you expand on that just a little bit well you know there's going to be all sorts of proposals about um you know foreign investment the independence of the central bank um whatever goes into a, a constitution 
do each one of those things in order to become a part of the constitution have to be approved by say two thirds of the constituent assembly or will it all be submitted uh, as one package for one vote that needs to pass a two thirds? Well, let me let me ask you this because if it's, if it's passed, uh, sorry, if it's submitted as a whole, that could actually work in favor of of Chile, uh, of liberal democracy in Chile, because by that time, so many people will be angry at different points in the Constitution. Uh, and, and they will see so many red flags of the things that they don't like that they might say, ah, oh, bugger it, I'm not going to vote for, for the whole thing. Yeah, I think you're right. And so that's that's something that uh, I think it really does matter what they end up <laughs> deciding on in that regard. And then, and then once they have the text, which emerges from the Constitutional Assembly, does it have to go to the people for a final approval? And if so, by what majority? Um, I'm not, I'm not sure what the process is okay. for that. So, okay. a better so, question. So this is a good time and place to switch to another country, uh, which I know is very close to your heart, and that's Peru. Um, what on earth is going on? Um, uh, there, there was a presidential election, there was a runoff, and it looks like the country voted 50% for a Marxist and a 50% for somebody else. But right now, it's not clear who is the winner. So could you perhaps start by, before we talk about Chile and, uh, sorry, before we talk about Peru and its accomplishments, let's start with the two candidates, the presidential election and the current state of affairs. Yeah, so there was a vote, uh, a presidential uh, vote earlier this year, in which there were 17 candidates, uh, none of them really good. And um, in Peru, you have to pass pass a, a certain threshold in order to actually win the election. And if you don't, which none of them did, there's a runoff election among the top two. Well, the top two ended up being um, one guy named Pedro Castillo, who is a leftist, and the other candidate, Keiko Fujimori, the, son, the daughter of the former president Fujimori, who's in jail uh, now uh, because he, he turned his government into a dictatorship. Um, and uh, they pretty much represent totally uh, different uh, views. Uh, neither one of them is a good candidate. Uh, but I'll start by describing how bad Pedro Castillo is and how um, he actually represents a radical break from everything that uh, Peru has been doing in a way that Keiko Fujimori would not. Um, he uh, represents a party that describes itself as Marxist-Leninist. It has a has a platform with a government program that uh, cites Lenin, Marx, Fidel Castro, Maduro uh, from Venezuela. The party uh, actually does look to Venezuela as an example. Pedro Castillo himself uh, has said and is explicit about his view that uh, Venezuela is a democracy, not a dictatorship. Um, they do not believe in freedom of the press. They believe that uh, as long as the press is in private hands, that's some form of oppression. So very Marxist view. Uh, they believe that uh, Peru has been completely exploited by international capital and 
want to nationalize strategic industries or at the very least tax them at uh, punitive rates. Um, they believe in all sorts of, of uh, nationalizations and on and on with that kind of um, uh, far left uh, agenda. Now, most Peruvians probably weren't aware of how far left that, that was until more recently. And uh, that made him come out and say, no, no, we're, we're going to safeguard democracy. We're not going to turn into a dictatorship. We're not, uh, I'm not gonna stay here for forever, even though the, the head of the party and the founder of the party, who by the way, would have been its candidate, but was disqualified because um, he was convicted for corruption and so on. So he couldn't run and he picked this other guy. He's gonna be the real power behind the throne if he comes to, to power. He has said that once we come to power, we have to hold on to it forever because that is actually the, the extreme left view. And, and that is exactly what has happened uh, in these other authoritarian populist uh, countries, or at least they've, they've tried as much as they, they can. Uh, that person, the head of that party, uh, was trained in Cuba for 10 years, and he uh, is just part of this uh, tradition. In any event, um, the other candidate is Keiko Fujimori, who I think has been uh, a bad politician for Peru. She's been a perennial presidential candidate for the last, whatever, 15 or more years, and um, she hasn't been elected. Uh, she uh, by all indications, has ties to criminal activities and so on. She has a criminal case in the courts pending against her for corruption and, and so on. This has been suspended for the time being during the during this election. And, and of course, if she became president, it, it would be suspended during that time too. Um, and yet um, she is promising to keep the constitution as opposed to what Pedro Castillo is promising. He wants, he is calling like in Chile, like in these other countries for constituent assembly to re totally rewrite the, the constitution because after all the constitution is unfair and we cannot have, according to him, his, his uh, uh, whatever his, his campaign slogan is no more poor people in a country that is as rich as Peru. Okay. Um, and so it gives this impression that there has been something going terribly wrong in Peru, uh, and especially for poor people during this, this last couple of decades, when in fact, everything is, uh, uh, points to the contrary. And anyway, I, I, want to, I want to get, I want to get to that in a second, but so how did the election end up? So, uh, they finally counted the, they finally finished counting the, the votes and the vote is so narrow that the difference is 0 0.25 percentage points in favor of Pedro Castillo, the, the uh, leftist candidate. And uh, there is now some political turmoil going on because Keiko Fujimori's camp um, is claiming that there is evidence of fraud, widespread fraud that the election authorities have to look into. And we don't need to get into all sorts of technicalities. There's different interpretations as to what counts for, for fraud and also whether they brought these complaints in on time to the election authorities or not, 
was it okay for them to bring it in at at, uh, whatever, after 8 p.m., but before 12 p.m. on the day that the Constitution says you have to have it in or not? And the, the problem here is that if she's right, it would um, overturn hundreds of thousands of votes and change the election results. So in the balance is the future of Peru. And it's not just the difference between one candidate and another. It's the, entirely the difference between two, two models. One that would be, one that would be uh, Venezuelan style and one that would continue to be with all its flaws a market democracy. Not to mention that when you have a country which is pretty much uh, split down the middle, regardless of where those few hundred thousand votes go, how is that going to be resolved? I mean, assuming that she can she can change those results, or rather the courts can change it on her behalf, there is still going to be 50% of the population which are going to hate her and oppose everything she does and claim that the election was stolen. So this, is, this doesn't sound very good. But I know that... Um, um, from your writings and from other interviews that you've given, how puzzling, in a way, uh, the the strong performance of Castillo is, because Peru is not a basket case. It actually did have a very good couple of decades. So could you tell us a little more about uh, why is this such a conundrum? Why, why is it surprising? Um, what is Peru like? Did it see progress? Peru is, is one of the great success stories of Latin America. After Chile, I would say it's, it's the one that has shown the most progress. In the 1990s, in the early 90s, it was the one that implemented the most far-reaching, coherent market reforms. And um, since then, um, it's, it, its per capita income has nearly tripled. Now, to put things in perspective, uh, I, I mentioned that the 1980s were a lost decade and hyperinflation was destroying the country and there was the, the Shining Path rebels that were taking over and, and, and much of the country and so on. Um, but ba- basically that resulted from um, many years of bad policies. In 1968, there was a military coup, but it was a military that implemented socialist policies. So it was a military that, that um, ruled from the left. And it had a lot of terrible policies that, um, um, that it took Peru a lot of time to get out of. It looked like in 1980, when there was the transition to democracy, it would start getting out of it. But uh, as I say, Bad economic policies continued, and then in 1985, President Alan Garcia uh, came to power with very socialistic uh, agenda, and things went even worse, so that by 1990, the per capita income was the same as 30 years before. That's how far back uh, these bad ideas uh, set Peru. And it was only in 1990 when these market reforms began that you start to see this increase in per capita income. And it is quite clear. If you look at a graph, you see um, how well Peru has done on, on income and wealth um, after market reforms. A graph that could very easily be called the power of ideas. Because what came before were all these 
combination of bad ideas that were socialist, that were heterodox, that were everything but market reforms, and then a coherent application of, of market reforms, and ones that were, for the most part, stuck to and deepened during this period of time, which also makes Peru a different story in Latin America, because um, as you recall, a lot of countries in Latin America started out by doing reforms, but then they uh, committed huge um, policy mistakes that led to financial crises. You remember the financial crisis of the Mexico crisis of 94 and uh, 95. Um, that's because of terrible monetary and uh, fiscal policy that they followed. Peru didn't commit those mistakes. It just kept on going. It started having more free trade agreements and so on. Argentina had the same uh, problem uh, in a different way than uh, a similar problem as as Mexico, it had a finance had more than one financial crisis. What was that? So the year, Brazil. the year of but four presidents. Different. Yeah. Okay. So if you look at growth, you see this this clear uh, thing going on, and you also see that during this time, for the first time, you see inequality start, uh, coming down quite notably in Peru. More people have opportunities. This is starting to benefit everybody and in a very widely shared way. And uh, you see the poverty rate plummet. You know, uh, 15 years ago, it was over 50%. And in 2019, it fell to 20%. This is, this is a tremendous uh, amount of progress. Not, nowhere, no, at no time in the history of Peru did you see that. And it wasn't just in the capital city of Lima or along the coast as usually has been the case in the history of Peru when there's progress, some people benefit geographically. It, it was very widespread in most parts of the country, in the interior, in the, uh, in the Andes, in the rural areas, in the urban areas. Um, so you see that, uh, that, that every sector of society has benefited in a way that has never been the case in the history of Peru. The growth rate in the in the interior of the country uh, during this period of time was much higher than the growth rate along the coast. Why? Because there was much more connectivity for the first time in, in Peru's history, that is roads and telecommunications and so on, went alongside of these greater greater freedoms. It's not like so many other uh, poor countries that build roads and do all sorts of sort of infrastructure spending that, that then don't lead to development because they don't actually free up the, the, the country. And so people don't buy motorcycles and start businesses and so on. And, and then you can't even sustain and, and pay for the, for the highways. They crumble and, and so on. It leads to debt, not development. No, the opposite was happening in Peru. So Peru was completely transformed during this time. I mean, uh, there's just this, this boom in exports, this boom in all sorts of industries, non-traditional exports. Are, I mean, Peru exports tens of millions of dollars of soft, software. Uh, things that you would never thought of uh, before. Entire parts of the countryside and the coast, the, the coast that was desert is blooming uh, green uh, with all sorts of agriculture today. You go to the store in the United States and you can find uh, at the grocery store a lot of products from Peru. That wasn't the case 15 years ago. Um, and of course, as you know, um, when countries um, rely on their comparative advantage for development, 
soon other complementary kinds of developments occur in services and manufacturing and and you know banking and 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 that is the process of development that you've seen happening in Peru uh, over all these years. So um, look at almost any indicator of human well-being. And if you just look at, 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 at those indicators for the poor in Peru, you see how they have benefited tremendously. I mean, the, the, the percentage of slum dwellers in Peru have been cut by half since the reforms began. The um, access to, to water in, in poor people's homes has just shot up. Malnutrition has just collapsed. Almost anything that you look at, you will see these benefits. And if you just look at how the poor have fared, you will see their literacy rates go up. You will see almost every indicator that the, the type of floors in their houses are known, are, which were commonly dirt, uh, increasingly are made of cement or wood. This is, this is also a country that has become a middle-class country because of these reforms also for the very first time in Peruvian history. So these are, these are the kinds of uh, tremendous um, transformations. To, today, Peru is a completely different country than it was even 10 years ago, not to speak of 15 or 30 years ago. Which brings up the obvious question, what on earth happened? Well, that's a good question. And I would start out by saying that I don't think that, um, if, that, the, that if Pedro Castillo gets elected, that is an expression of uh, half of the country wanting socialist uh, policies for the country. I don't think that we can conclude that. If you looked at the polls in the weeks and months before the actual election, um, the, 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 the first round of elections where there were 17 different candidates. Every few weeks, there was a completely different candidate heading the, being the most popular. Mm -hmm. um, for a while, it was another leftist candidate. Then there was a guy that was from the far right who was very religious and so on. And everybody thought, well, he's going to be the next president, no doubt about it. And then somebody else came up. And it just so happened that as, as this, this list just kept changing, the election occurred when this Pedro Castillo guy's turn was, was and he got that that vote. So that's part of that's part of the the answer. But I think that uh, uh, three things explain Peru's situation. Um, one of them is um, that even though the economy has been doing very well uh, generally over all, all these years, the political situation has become increasingly dysfunctional. And um, to the point that Peru has had five presidents in the last, uh, I don't know, five years or so. And uh, it's been very unstable. The Congress and the president are at each other's throats. The president under the constitution can shut down the Congress uh, after going through certain procedures. The Congress can, uh, can impeach the president. And that didn't used to happen so much, but it's happening now a lot. Ironically, the, the candidate, the, the, the political leader who is uh, very responsible for that kind of thing is Keiko Fujimori, the person who, who is the other candidate today, because um, during a previous presidency, she didn't, uh, during a previous presidency uh, that she lost, she didn't allow the, that president to govern. She had control of the Congress, even though they had basically the same agenda. 
and it started off this this process of instability so that's part of it the dysfunctionality has left a real big bad taste in the mouths of most uh, peruvians who want somebody from outside the system uh, not the same old face and keiko fujimori is viewed as part of the system a corrupt person and it and uh, she's associated with um, a lot of bad things in Peru. P people, there are, there's a huge portion of the population that would never vote for her. And we're seeing partially that. Corruption has also been something that has exploded uh, in the news in Peru over the past uh, several years as a result, especially of the Brazilian Odebrecht case that, uh, that uh, ended up corrupting a lot of the political systems all, all over Latin America. But one of the virtues of Peru has been that Outside of Brazil, it's been basically the only country where it has actually held top political leaders from ex-presidents on, on down um, uh, accountable for the corruption that they were involved in. And so several uh, ex-presidents have been in jail. One of them committed suicide. Um, and there is plenty of evidence of all sorts of corruption that had been going on during this, during this period of time. And so that also creates a sort of a rejection of what people view as the, the this system that was put in place over the past uh, several decades. And certainly the left has taken full advantage of that to create a narrative that says the free market system, which is so unfair, uh, is consistent with this. When we know from academic studies that the more a government intervenes in an economy, the, the more corruption there is. And... Um, and that's true in, in Peru too. It's, there's probably been less corruption except in these exceptional case, cases that, than in the past. Uh, but it's also a more transparent country and there's, there's kind of a better development of the rule of law by holding these guys uh, accountable. So you have that uh, as well. But I think that the pandemic is what helps push all of this over the top. Um, when the pandemic occurred, Peru was one of the countries that was most extreme in its measures and, and one of the first countries to, to, to lock down in an extreme way. It shut down all flights inside and outside. It told people to stay in their houses. Um, it shut the country off from, from uh, external contact. It put the military on the streets. It enforced it. And these are bad policies uh, that, that extreme, I think, in most countries. <laughs> but but in a poor country, it's totally unsustainable. People have to work to, 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 to survive. They have to go out of their houses. And um, what was the result? Uh, it led to a more than 11% contraction in the economy last year. This is, a, this is huge because they basically stopped the economy and it had no effect or virtually no effect seemingly on COVID. COVID in Peru uh, is one of the worst rates of, of contagion and um, mortality rates in the world. So it failed on all those accounts. Of course, the public health system, which was never reformed uh, uh, in, in Peru, was a complete failure. It's always been a disaster. And somehow that was, again, taken by the left uh, as evidence that the free market reforms were a failure for, uh, for Peru. And so all of this discontent, which was associated with the government at the time, which was completely inept, um, 
is what a lot of Peruvians are rejecting. Wow, I mean, interesting, but also depressing at the same time. Uh, it, it seems to me that uh, in, uh, I mean, obviously both Chile and uh, Peru are quite different, but in neither country, it seems to me there was a massive appreciation of the underlying factors that made human progress possible. In Chile, nobody was defending it. In Peru, it doesn't seem like anybody was singing the praises of uh, free market and uh, liberal democracy. Maybe I'm wrong on that. But uh, if progress is to be maintained, it seems to me people need to also understand what are the causes of progress and not to, not to assign progress to the wrong ideas. So ultimately, it's an ideological conflict. Would you agree with that? Yes, I think that ultimately it is. I mean, part of the answer is to know the facts. And um, if people uh, believe that the system is unjust and the facts don't really matter, um, or they can ignore them, or what is happening too many times, they go with alternative, <laughs> alternative facts. And, and then you have a real um, epistemic crisis, which is what what I think is happening in a lot of the world today in, in the way that Jonathan Rausch uh, has explained it in his latest book, uh, where people can't even agree what the, what the actual uh, object, objective truth is, much less that there is an objective truth. And uh, both the extreme right and the extreme left engaged in that in, in different ways. Um, and uh, so that's part of it. But I think in Latin America, um, or at least in these cases, part of the problem is kind of the, also the, the Tocqueville effect. You know, this idea that um, as things get better and better, um, you get more social unrest because the things like child labor or stuff that, um, um, that was commonplace before um, and becomes less commonplace starts to stand out and you and people don't like it so they protest it and you get the impression that things are not good when in fact things are getting better uh but the bad things start standing out much more because they're just less common and uh, i have this this great quote from tocqueville from, uh democracy in america where he he talks where where, where he says the hatred that men bear to privilege increases in, propor in proportion as privileges become fewer and less considerable, so that democratic passions would seem to burn most fiercely just when they have the least fuel. When all conditions are unequal, no inequality is so great as to offend the eye, whereas the slightest dissimilarity is odious in the midst of general uniformity. And that's the de Tocqueville effect. I mean, Peru and Chile are still um, highly unequal countries, but things have become so much better that that 20% of poverty in Peru is standing out more than when the majority of people were poor. And Pedro Castillo is pointing to that and say, we shouldn't have any poor people in a country this rich. Let's just reject all of the policies and institutions <laughs> that produced all of this progress. It's a non sequitur, but, it, but that's the narrative that he's using that has gone some way with some portion of, of the population. Ian, thank you very much for your time. This was absolutely fascinating. I hope the viewers like it and uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks very much, Mary.